This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, everybody. This is Joan Neuberger, your host for this episode of 15-Minute History. Uh, today, our guest in the studio is Bob Weinberg, an old friend of mine. Um, so it's always really fun to do an interview with someone I've known forever. And Bob teaches uh, history at Swarthmore College. He writes about Jewish history and Russian history. And um, today we're going to talk about the Bayless trial, the infamous blood libel trial that took place in Russia at the turn of the century. So, Bob, welcome to 15-Minute History. Thank you for inviting me. Maybe we could start, you could just give us a, a brief overview of the affair, the Bayless trial, and, and uh, sort of set the scene. Okay, so it's March 1911. In Kiev, a young boy, about 12 years old, is found sitting up in a cave in the outskirts of Kiev with about four dozen knife wounds all over him. They were able to identify the boy because his school books were next to him. He decided not to go to school that day, but came to this neighborhood to see an old friend. At first, the police thought that maybe his family may have been involved in the murder because there was a rumor that he had an inheritance and they were maybe trying to get hold of the money. But soon after, within a week or so, some local right-wing anti-Semites, known in general terms as the Black Hundreds, began to claim that this was a ritual murder, that Jews had been involved in this kid's murder in order to collect the blood for the baking of matzah. This was right around Passover, Easter time. And this is, uh, I can talk more about that, the history of that kind of claim. So the local... Well, why don't we stop there? Why don't you, why don't you tell us about what the history of okay, blood so libel beginning is? Beginning in the 12th century in England, uh, the accusation emerged that Jews needed Gentile blood, preferably of young Gentile boys and girls, for a variety of religious and ritual purposes. For example, Jews might want to mock the passion of Christ, and so they needed blood for that, or they were desecrating the host, and they need blood for that. Or that Jews had a particular concern about blood because of circumcision, and so on and so forth. By the 13th century, it becomes mostly an accusation that Jews actually consumed the blood in the form of matzah. Okay, so the Vatican, the Pope's issue over the centuries, papal bulls condemning this false accusation, but the local populace and the clergy as well continue to believe it. And the accusation spreads from England into France, into Germany and Central Europe, and by the late 15th century, it's the high point, and there's a very famous trial in 1475 in Trent, where a community of Jews are accused of killing a Christian boy for the blood. Several of them are put to death and so on and so forth. But the accusation begins to die out during the Reformation, but it moves eastward. Eastern Orthodoxy didn't really fixate too much on the blood libel. But the Catholic Church begins to pick it up, and it sort of finds a new home in what we would call Poland or the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. 
and that's where the vast majority of European Jews live. And when Russia acquires a chunk of this commonwealth with a lot of Jews, it begins to spread into Russia proper. And, the, at the end of the 18th, early 19th yeah, century. And by throughout the 19th century, it sort of becomes a popular belief. By 1900, many Christians in the Russian Empire would believe it. Mm-hmm. These accusations tend to occur at Easter and Passover time. And there are always these accusations. In every Jewish community, they need the blood. No one ever asked the basic question. If that was the case, then why aren't there tens of thousands of accusations every year saying children are missing? Usually the children are killed by someone else or they went missing, ran away. So it's a a popular sort of myth of anti-Semitism. You know, for example, you know, let's say you run away from home, but then you get caught. So you don't want to get punished by your parents. You just say, a bunch of Jews kidnapped me. And tried to take my blood. Yeah. But this becomes a real cause, Celebra. So who is Mendel Bayliss, and why was he accused? Mendel Bayliss is a nondescript man, late 30s, five children, manages a brick factory near these caves on the outskirts of Kiev. Well, like he was relatively wealthy if he manages a factory. Not really. Not no, wealthy. No, then. I mean, but not poor. Not poor, but it was, and he was well liked by the local community, the Christian and Jewish community. He would do favors for the local church at times. They could do funeral processions through the brickyard. So he's not really a visible presence, and it's not clear exactly how they decide to focus on him. But within a month or two of the murder, a local policeman, detective, and a new prosecuting attorney replace the original ones, and they decide to say that this is a ritual murder. It's not even clear whether they believed it or not. It's irrelevant. But they believe that if they don't act on this, the right-wing groups would cause a lot of social unrest. So they decide to look for a Jew that would be a perfect target. And since Bayless is in a brick factory near these caves, they arrest him and they manufacture a case against him. So before we turn to the case and the trial, did they ever find out who really killed him? Well, that's not clear. The most accurate scenario that I, I think people believe is that the friend that this boy Andre had come to visit. His mother and her gang of thieves killed the boy because the boy had a fight with this woman's son and said, well, I'm angry at you. I'm going to tell the police what your mother does because she's a fence and there are all these stolen goods in the apartment. So they believe that he, they killed him one afternoon, a Saturday afternoon when he was in the apartment and then moved the body. But that's problematic. She's probably responsible for these murders. However, there's some problems with that because he is killed on a Saturday and his body's not moved until a Tuesday to the caves, right? It's March and it may be cold, but bodies do smell (laughs) after a few days. No one ever talked about that. Uh, And it's not clear how this one woman, because the gang of thieves all left for Moscow where they got arrested for doing some other criminal activity. So it's not clear how the body got to the cave, because it wouldn't have happened during the day. 
because people are around, so it's not clear. Mm-hmm. Why this case? Why was there a trial? It's Kiev 1911. Why does the government decide to um, make a big trial? Okay, so it's not part of a grand conspiracy orchestrated in St. Petersburg, but the local prosecutor and police detective get the ear of the Minister of Justice, who says, yeah, sounds good to me. Go for it. Many of these people are highly educated, so who knows whether they believed it or not. Tsar Nicholas II seemed to believe that the Jews were capable of this kind of crime. Some people think maybe it was a way to curry favor with the Tsar and his close advisors that they would like this. My sense is that at this time, there was some talk of ending the Pale of Settlement. So the Pale of Settlement, where where Jews are are required to live, a special area of Residency restrictions. So that was the so-called Pale of Settlement. And there was some talk of maybe eliminating that. And that would fit in with maybe Peter Stolipin, the prime minister's overall reforms of trying to modernize Russia in some sense. So So this was a way— Ending the restrictions on where Jews could live? Yeah, And that would be good for the economy and so on and so forth. And so that didn't sit well with the very conservative folks in the Russian government and society. So they thought, maybe if we can prove to the world that Jews are capable of this kind of behavior, they'll stop complaining of our discriminatory policies towards Jews. I think that is a good explanation, and it sort of— allows for some acceptance of the belief that there is this conspiracy of the top minister of justice, minister of the interior, support this. But probably it was a ploy that backfired. Uh, so, so tell us about the trial. How did it backfire? Okay, so Bayless is arrested in July 1911. He gets an indictment in January 1912. So he's sitting in prison He's not allowed to see anybody, his family, lawyers, and so on. The indictment comes out accusing him of killing this boy, Andre, for the blood. After a month or two, people begin to realize the government has no hard evidence of any sort connecting Bayless to the murder. So they redo the indictment, and it's not until the following year, if I'm not mistaken, 1913. So he's going to be in prison over two years before the trial, July 1911 to September 1913, where they sort of now emphasize the ritual murder aspect. Bayless, with some other unknown co-conspirators, are engaged in this. And they just suborn perjury and collect all this false evidence. A lot of it, of the damning evidence against Bayless, comes from this boy's mother, the thief, who has a real interest in you know, proving that she's not the guilty party. Plus, she's also a member of the Black Hundreds, so the Black Hundreds also wanted to protect her. This woman had been in jail before. She was not a good person, uh, not a good mother. I mean, she's just to get ahead of the story, she's killed by the Bolsheviks during the Civil War. So what happens? Is, okay, he, so, is he convicted? So throughout 30 days, there's all this testimony. And you can read, and there's just no evidence against Bayless. 
But they try to manufacture a case saying that Malus and some others are engaged in this ritual murder. There are witnesses that retract or say, yes, the police beat me to say this, and then they change the testimony the next time. So it's just riddled with holes. And the jury, which is comprised of 12 jurors, come back and seven to five say, yes, the murder has the features of a ritual murder. However, it comes back tied, saying that Bayless was responsible. So because it was a tie verdict, he walks. And the government, after they had reissued the second indictment focusing on ritual murder rather than Bayless himself, claimed victory because now we can show the world that Jews actually engage in this kind of behavior. And uh, we should be careful about sort of lifting the restrictions on Hmm. them. So was there another trial? No. No other trial. He's released. Sober minds realize they don't have a case against him, but they prove that it's a ritual murder. So they are happy with that result. And he picks up with his family, moves to Palestine. Do you know anything about Bayless's life after he leaves? That's sort of sad. Before he moves to Palestine, he, all he wants to do, he says, is get some land and farm. And people promise him all this money on lecture tours. And he decides he just wants to go to Palestine. And then World War I breaks out. And all the money that people had donated to him gets frozen in a British bank because now Germany has sort of controlled the bank. It was a German bank or something. And so he has a tough time with the five kids. One of the kids is in the British military. And he never really finds a way to make a living. Certainly not in Palestine. People are still trying to encourage him to take a lecture tour. After the war in the early 1920s, people encourage him to go to Europe, go to the United States, speak. One suggestion was that he could be a sort of sit on a stool at like in in the entrance of Macy's, the equivalent of Macy's, and greet people. No, that was beneath the dignity of the great Bayless. I mean, he was world famous because of this case. And so I would assume pretty much any educated Jew in the United States, England, Western Europe would know who he is. This case won international attention? Yeah, could have read about it in the New York Times, certainly while the trial's occurring in, the, in September 1913. Everybody was writing about it. And it was probably the most famous case of blood libel, ritual murder that has ever occurred. So there are plenty of examples of anti-Semitism, racism, trials that shouldn't have been held. Why did this one catch people's imagination and make everybody want to write about it? That's a good question. I am not sure why this more than, let's say, Leo Frank in the United States, who was accused of murder in the South, Dreyfus in France in the 1890s, which was before this was just as well known. But I think the Bayless case becomes more important, one, because it circulates strongly in the United States press. And there's an outrage. And it's the Russian Empire, not France. So maybe Dreyfus is guilty of selling military secrets, you know. But Bayless, this is Russia. I mean, right? I mean, if you told me today that the Russian government was hacking computers, why not believe it? Uh, 
You can excise that part. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think that's a good example. So actually, are there blood libel accusations today? You can find them. I realized when I was writing my book why I became interested. I had totally forgotten about this. But in 1992, I was in Moscow working in the Lenin Library, and a friend, colleague, Mark Steinberg, was with me. And we noticed these people out in the plaza demonstrating. And we didn't know what it was, but Mark is curious. So he went out and said, what, you know, what, what's going on? Oh, and they had these signs saying, don't give away our national treasures. He says, what do you, what is this? They said that there was a collection of books in the basement of the Lenin Library of Jewish texts that had been there since 1917, tens of thousands of manuscripts, books, and they belonged to the Lubavitcher Hasidic Rebbe and his successor, and that these books were going to be repatriated to Brooklyn where the Lubavitchers have their headquarters. A Russian court said, yeah, they have, should be repatriated. These protesters, when they heard about this, and mind you, nobody had looked at these in 60, 70 years. Uh, nobody could read them. But these books contain the secret of the blood libel. And we can allow these crafty Jews to take them, spirit them to the United States where they could hide the secret from everybody. And the books are still there. Some of the books— The books are still there in Moscow? Some of the books were allowed to go to Brooklyn— get digitized or Xerox and microfilmed or back. This, it was only a few years ago that a federal appeals court in the United States settled the case saying these books belong in Brooklyn and the Russian government won't give them over. So, uh, so do so, we know anything about the books? What, what's no, in them? They don't read the language. It's Hebrew. <laughs> They're in Hebrew. Or Yiddish. I mean, so they don't, nobody can read the books. <laughs> and that's why it's so easy for these rumors or these beliefs to spread because, right, here are these Jews, they're engaged in this religious practice. I can't understand a word they're saying, and who knows? And we can't read these, all these commentaries they have. But they're also, in the 1990s, if I'm not mistaken, there was some, there was an argument put forth in some Italian church newspaper about that the, you know, the ritual murder should be looked at again. There was a comment a few years ago in the Hungarian parliament about reexamining a very famous blood libel case from 1880, 1882. So you find, and then there was this woman on the Oprah show who talked about ritual murder and the Jews needing the blood for some so, religious purposes. So this is, a, this is a myth that has a lot of power. And, and you can find it in newspapers in the Middle East when they need to attack Israel. Sometimes they talk about ritual murder along with the protocols of the elders of Zion. Mm -hmm. So it all fits into an anti-Israel diatribe. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was something... Ten years ago, some belief that Israeli doctors were harvesting organs of Palestinians for blood ritual purposes. My feeling is anti-Semitism doesn't tell you anything about Jews. It tells you everything about Gentiles and what they fear and don't fear. Uh, I, you know, the reason I think this ritual murder myth caught on, according to some historians, is that at about the same time, in the early 13th century, the church uh, sort of solidified its belief about transubstantiation, that the 
wine and wafer of the Eucharist are actually become the blood and body of Christ. And some people believe that Christian believers, right, you should sort of be horrified that you're actually cannibalizing Christ. So they can't so, so we're projecting it. So they their, project it onto the Jews. Yeah. And, uh, and that makes sense, too. But, uh, you know, you don't want to believe it about yourself, but you can believe it about the Jews who are suspicious anyway. So, uh, and we, you know, we don't know what they're doing. On that note of mystery, <laughs> thank you very much, Bob. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U site administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.